A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. History. That's part of where we're going today, folks. Despite what some of us may experience in grade school, history is much more than a collection of isolated statistics and out-of-context facts printed in dusty classroom tomes. History is both powerful and, at times, controversial. The story of human civilization, in particular, is full to the brim of stories that people in power sometimes would rather be forgotten, as well as stories that can empower us with a new understanding of the present. In today's interview, we're diving into the power of history, and we're diving into the consequences of sometimes bad decisions, as well as the literal cautionary tales it can teach us and We are not setting off on this journey alone. Please join us in welcoming the economist, journalist, broadcaster, and author, Tim Harford, the creator of the Cautionary Tales podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tim. 
Oh, wow. I'm so pleased to be on the show. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> so, you can uh, have a podcaster to that too, right? You're, not, you're, old, you're an old oh, school yeah. and a new school uh, media specialist there, right? Yeah, I've, I've done it all. I'm, I mean, I'm feeling my castings. age now, but done it all. <laughs> uh, just, to, just on that note, I, I have to bring this up, Tim. I was looking back just through your work, and I realized I had, I've been watching you on television for quite a while. I think we all have. Um, specifically, I looked back at an episode of The Colbert Report, uh, there's actually, I'm sure there's more than one. Maybe there, I, the only one that I saw and vividly remembered was when you were, uh, you were discussing a book that had recently come out, the logic of life. And, uh, my goodness, that was wonderful. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> it was, that was an incredible experience that Colbert, he, I, there was a joke in that exchange about, um, Maybe I shouldn't, I, I don't know how adult the audience is, so maybe I shouldn't go into all the details Very. of the joke. It was a slightly X-rated <laughs> joke about Pepsi and, and Coke. And yes. um, I, I had I had worked on that book for two years and Colbert's, and, and did not, the, the, the joke which in retrospect is obvious about today's teenagers being the Pepsi generation and uh, mm-hmm. what they like to get up to. Um, the joke did not occur to me. It, it, it occurred to, to Stephen in, in about three seconds. I mean, he's, um, he's very, very good at what he does. He's also, he's super nice backstage. He was so nice. He came into the green room and he talked it all through. And he's like, have you ever seen the show? Do you know what the show's about? And I'm going to be in character. My character's a total idiot. My character hasn't read your book. My character doesn't, doesn't understand anything. And I was like, oh, that's, that's so kind of him. And then he got into character later and he walked past my dressing room and he yells out I'm going to tear you apart Harper. I was like wow like the guy is in the zone now this is how it all works behind the scenes yeah, you got to wonder if that took a toll on him eventually, and that's why he kind of decided to pivot away from doing that character, uh, which I'm, I'm, I mean, it was a wonderful period in his career, but I'm kind of glad that he's just himself now. He's such a thoughtful guy and a devout, a devoutly religious man, which is interesting uh, considering the types of conversations that, uh, that we're having today as well. And, and a Dungeons & Dragons fan as well. That's right. And which a Tolkien is, which is, he's, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's... So he's one of the gang there. There's a cautionary tales about Dungeons and Dragons, which we can discuss if you like. Yes, um, but the the whole reason of bringing that up is is because that that appearance was in 2008, and uh, far before that, and up until that point, and up until today, one of your main, at least in in my mind, one of your main uh, studies is in logic itself and how we think and critical thinking and the way we uh, look at things and how we analyze them. And I, I just want to say thank you for doing that, first of all, because we need it very, very much now and then and before and always we need that. And how has that pursuit of logic and uh, how has that affected your own work in choosing what to cover next? It, it's a good question. It's taken me on quite a journey because I, I began, I studied philosophy and I studied formal logic and I studied economics. And as a journalist, at first I was covering economics and ideas in economics and the free economics kind of stuff. And also statistics and the way people think about numbers and the way numbers are used as weapons and the way numbers are used to sell things, to sell political ideas, to sell you soft drinks, whatever it is. And over time, I came to realize that the way that we process these apparent facts is not often logical. It's emotional. And it's not because people are dumb. It's because they're human. And I got more and more interested in the things that we get wrong, in the way that we persuade ourselves of things 
that aren't necessarily true. And so I had this journey on studying, from studying logic, studying rationality, studying statistical reasoning, to study, studying the, you know, we kind of meat sacks that we are trying to understand all of these things. And, and I think you need a bit of both. If you're going to understand the world, you, you want to understand the rational side, but you need to understand the emotional side as well. The reason I brought up the Colbert thing and him being devoutly religious, um, you know, when uh, thinking about logic and this kind of stuff, he's obviously an incredibly intelligent man. There are obviously very intelligent people that are very much like yourself, focused on statistics and logic and all of this kind of thing and rational thought who are devoutly religious. Is there a place for that in your studies that you found or is it sort of do you see it as a form of self-delusion well i'm not a religious person myself but i certainly wouldn't see it as self-delusion i mean my my wife is religious and i certainly i think my wife is a person of extreme uh, taste and good judgment in all things <laughs> smart man. so uh, yeah i you know, i'm struck by how there's a particular group who say that they're logical and say that they're rational about this issue and then seem to get really up in everyone's faces about it. And I'm not sure that we need to argue so much about this particular subject. I think it's possible to understand, to disagree with someone in a friendly way, to still treat them as human, to still treat them as thoughtful and to be curious about their views. Um, you don't have to agree with them, but you don't have to just constantly be chipping away at them either. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that I see as a common through line in your work, Tim. I, I will admit that when I was uh, researching this uh, interview that we're doing today, I had a moment of epiphany similar to what Matt described, where I said, oh, it's, it's that, Tim. I've been reading. I have, I have his books. And uh, I love this through line of exploring empathy as well as economics. And I was wondering if we could ask some, uh, <laughs> some kind of dumb questions on my end about economics. Uh, I was going to say there are no dumb questions, but I should wait until I've heard the questions before I say that, shouldn't I? But yeah, <laughs> no, go, I, go right ahead. I, I'm leaning into your long history as a columnist, fielding questions from the public. Uh, and what, one thing that I wanted to start with is the idea that economics have occasionally been called, you know, the whoosh, whoosh, dismal science. What in your mind are some of the common misconceptions about economics and statistics in, in the public? I mean, that, that dismal science thing is a good place to start because the person who accused economics of being the dismal science, uh, the dismal science was a guy called Thomas Carlyle, who was very upset that so many economists were abolitionists. They wanted to get rid of the slave trade. And they felt that if you wanted someone to work, you should agree a contract and pay them a wage to which they agree. And that's what you do if you want someone to work for them. You don't treat them as property. You don't oppress them. And Carlyle was like, oh, no, no, you don't understand kind of... Humanity is so diverse. There are people who, who are supposed to be masters and there are people who are supposed to be enslaved. And economists just don't understand this about the diversity of human beings. He's the guy who called us the dismal science. So guilty as charged. I'm happy to be dismal if I think that basically all, all humans are fundamentally equal. So that's one thing. Then when people, people call us the dismal science, they very often don't know where that comes from. Another thing that I think people get wrong is they think that economics is basically the study of money. I think, actually, economists don't think much about money, and you could accuse them of 
not thinking enough about money and and kind of treating it as though it was this it's a detail it doesn't really matter what we're interested in is in the real flow of goods and services and the decisions that people make every day and how they spend their lives and how they spend their time and how they reason maybe we should think a bit more about money but that's a thing people think that economics is is about money and actually economics is kind of about everything except money if that, I mean, that sounds a bit weird but i think uh, it's defensible well, and the, the economic argument against slavery wasn't necessarily even taking a political stance. It was more just about logistics and like how things would function better, like uh, as a society, if we, you know, move towards this model. I think there would be higher quality work. There would be less strife. It would just be a better situation. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not an expert in the history of it, but I know that one of the people who was most prominent was John Stuart Mill, who was both one of the greatest economists to have ever lived and also one of the greatest moral philosophers. So I... I would be fairly confident that he would be taking both the political and moral angle and also the practical angle. He would do both. I, I want to follow up with the question on uh, with the question on misconceptions in the world of statistics. Uh, no, you said something that, that really tickled me uh, right before we were recording, Tim, where we were we were talking about you know our tech details, and you said you know I I study how things go wrong, so I'm I'm prepared for this stuff, and uh, when we're talking about misconceptions and how things go wrong, something that I believe everyone in our audience has encountered hinges on statistics, especially when sort of cherry-picked, presented by politicians and pundits, usually to attempt to support their point, right? A quick glance at a, a, a kind of lazy, simple, colorful infographic and then move on, right? What can the average person do to understand whether or not a statistic is legitimate? So I wrote an entire book about this, and I'm going to give you the secret to that book so you don't need to buy it. Although I do recommend that you do buy it. It's called The Data Detective. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, I recommend the book. Uh, but, but then I would, wouldn't I? But let me try and give you the, <laughs> the, the, okay, so the three-part approach to making sense of a number that you see. Okay, it's the three Cs. Calm, context, curiosity. So the first C is calm. Most of the statistics that we see are drawn to our attention on social media or regular media because they elicit an emotional reaction. They're meant to make you upset, afraid, angry, amused at some other person is being stupid, uh, dumbfounded at the mendacity of politicians or something. It's supposed to elicit an, uh, an emotional reaction. That's why you're seeing it. So the very first thing is just be calm. Notice what is my emotional reaction? Is it denial? I can't possibly be true. Is it, oh yes, this just proves I'm right. Let me just go and tell my friend who I was arguing about this with. Just notice that reaction, count to three, then you, then you move on. So the, the second thing is context. And that's just to ask some basic facts about the statistic that you're being shown. The most basic of all is what is the definition? What is the way that uh, this thing is being measured or what is being measured? So let's say, for example, you're having an argument about uh, I don't know, immigration. Well, immigration is a, is a subject that you know, people get very excited about, they feel very emotional about on one side or the other. But what, how is it being measured? Like, are we talking about illegal immigration? Are we talking about people kind of illicitly crossing the border? Are we talking about people with green cards? Are we, what, or, or are, we, are we actually not really talking about immigration at all? We're talking about people of different ethnicities. What is it that we're talking about? So get the context. 
And that can also mean, is the number going up or down, whatever. Could also, is it a big number? Is it a small number? Can I compare it to something that makes it make sense? So first C was calm, second C was context. And the third really encompasses everything, which is curiosity. So you treat all this information as, hey, I don't know everything about the world. There are gaps in my knowledge. Is this filling a gap? Is this answering a question? If it doesn't answer a question, well, you know, dig deeper, go another click, ask around, get some more context. And and view these statistics as a way of, of making your ignorance smaller. Rather than, which sounds obvious, like, of course, a fact informs you, it fills in a gap in your knowledge, but that's not how we treat facts. We treat facts as weapons. We treat them as, aha, I can use this to win an argument. That's how so much of what we see is processed. So treat it instead in a curious frame of mind, calm, context, curiosity. And now you don't have to buy the data as a detective, but maybe you should. Yeah, I'm going to, uh, for sure. Um, I wish that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle could have purchased the data detective while he was still around. I, I want to bring this back to the fourth C, which is cautionary uh, tales, that is. And uh, a specific episode that that we listened to in preparation for this interview. Uh, It's on a curious case of images of fairies, uh, photographs, specifically plates, um, and how these photographs taken, I guess the first photograph ever taken by an amateur photographer and how it fooled Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So could you just tell us a bit of the story, maybe the condensed version, and then we can get into what, what occurred because of belief in this situation? I find the story just completely enchanting. And and by the way, this is a classic uh, way that we approach for uh, cautionary tales. So so I tell a story, we have actors, we have music, you know, really put in put in the, the work to, to give people a really immersive storytelling experience. And then we try to draw lessons from the story. Like what went wrong? What was the mistake? Are we making that same mistake ourselves? In this particular case, the story is of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle the creator of Sherlock Holmes, one of the most famous men in the world at the time, this is about 100 years ago, going public, publishing a book, publishing these huge cover stories saying, we found these photos of fairies. Fairies are real. Mind blown. And he sort of recognized, well, you know, maybe it could be a hoax, but of course it's not a hoax. And he found all these ways to dismiss the evidence that it was a hoax. And the, the photos, you can look them up on the internet very easily. They're, they're called the Cottingley Fairies. Cottingley being a suburb of Bradford in the north of England. Very charming, black and white photos. You've got these girls. Uh, one of them looks about nine years old. Another one's a little older. And there are these fairies in the foreground. And they kind of look a little bit like maybe they were cut out of a picture book, which probably they in fact were. Uh, and... And yet Sir Arthur convinced himself that a nine-year-old girl can't fake photos. He really wanted to believe. And there's a couple of different things going on there. One was his own family history. He was, he'd been bereaved several times. He'd lost his son. He'd lost his brother, his wife, and his mother. He was very close to his mother. And he really wanted to believe there's something out there. There's something more than just what we can see and touch ourselves. So he was very open to spiritualist beliefs. He was hungry for that. There was also a history in his family of taking fairies seriously. His father was confined to a, a mental asylum and he used to draw 
pictures of fairies and write, I have known such a creature. So you really, there's this real longing to believe. Um, but the other thing was that Sir Arthur was actually a very good photographer himself. His first ever published work was not The Sign of Four or The Hound of Baskervilles, one of these great Sherlock Holmes stories. It was a piece in the British Journal of Photography. So Sir Arthur knew that photographs could be faked. He just didn't want to believe that these ones were. And what he basically told himself is, I know how hard it is to take a photograph. I know how hard it is to fake a photograph. And I don't think a nine-year-old girl can do it. And that's why he just put his whole reputation on the line and he made a total fool of himself. I mean, it's so fascinating, especially since this is a man whose life's work is all about detective work and finding clues and using logic and reason to get to a, a realistic solution to a puzzle. Um, and he threw all that out the window in favor of belief. I think there's the cautionary tale right there. If this can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. Yes, if you want to believe it enough, you can find a way to believe. There's, there's another cautionary tale rather darker, but it's very, very similar of um, an art forger who fools the greatest art critic in the world. And it's the same basic story. A guy who really, he knows more than anybody else about the works of Vermeer. And that's why he wants so badly to believe he's just found a Vermeer. And um, that one involves Nazis and sex workers and kind of all kinds of weird stuff. So it's it's a little less family friendly, but same fundamental story. The ex, the leading expert uses their own expertise to kind of unravel themselves and to, to fool themselves. I love that you can apply something like that to other stories, right? Something that you find in cautionary tales as a listener, a uh, larger story, and then apply it to other things. I want to just go quickly back to kind of the origin of the fairy photograph and how it began, because I believe in the episode that you've got, uh, it's not necessarily a statement, but it was an interview that was given at some point by one of the children, uh, either Francis Griffiths or Elsie Wright. I think it may have been Elsie who gave the interview and she spoke of why it even occurred in the first place and how this entire huge uh, scenario was generated. Uh, you know, one of the most famous men, as you said, in the world writing about it. Um, it all started as an attempt to uh, help a child who was, I, what, could you tell us that story? The child was uh, getting in trouble for something or getting chastised for something and she wanted to help. And that's all it she was. She wanted to help out, yeah. Because one of the things we do in Cautioning Tales is, is, not, is there's often more than one side to the story. So we were trying to ask not only how did Sir Arthur fool himself, but also why did these girls do this and why didn't they own up for, I mean, it turns out 65 years. They kept the secret for 65 years. And Frances and Elsie were initially motivated because Frances, who was nine, got into trouble with her mother. She slipped in the stream. She got her clothes wet. Her mother was yelling at her and she said, well, I was playing with the fairies. That's why I slipped. And her mother sent her to her room because not only did she get her clothes wet, but she also told a lie about the fairies. And Elsie, who is her cousin, who lives with her, who's older, she's a teenager, she was outraged grown-ups are always making up stupid stuff. They're always telling us these fantastical lies. You know, you can think of your own examples. And why should Elsie, why should Francis get into such trouble for doing the same thing? So she said to Francis, don't worry, we'll borrow uh, my father's camera. We're going to go down the beck and we will take photographs of the fairies. And that's what they did. And of course, they, they were 
They were fake. Frances always said she really did see fairies, um, but she admitted that the photographs were, were faked. Elsie, I think, never believed in fairies. Um, but she believed in her artistic ability. She believed in her ability as a photographer and as an artist. And so it was partly a matter of pride. Once she'd started, she, she wanted to continue. And things escalated. So her father didn't believe her. Her mother was kind of curious. Her mother mentioned the photographs at this meeting of local spiritualists. Word got out to a very senior spiritualist, a man called Edward Gardner. Edward Gardner told Doyle. Doyle got hold of the photographs. Doyle is, as I mentioned, one of the most famous men in the world. And at each stage, Elsie is thinking, ah, oh, uh, <laughs> probably should own up. But but that would, that would be yeah. bad. That would be bad. And it just escalated and escalated and escalated. And it just got too far. In the end, she realized she would just humiliate these men. And so not for the first time, this young woman keeps quiet because she doesn't want to offend the egos of these older men. You know, this is something that really stands out to me about cautionary tales. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but one thing that really stood out in every episode and in The Mummy's Curse in particular is the structure, the way that we explore this story of, of the mummy's curse, right? Uh, in depth, and we go through all of the, all of the anecdotes and all of the uh, embellishments that accrete to the core legend over time. And then toward the turn of the narrative, we learn about selection bias. So in a very, in a very real way, Tim, cautionary tales seems to me, a masterclass in teaching people how to think. So I'm quite curious to learn, when you first set about making this show, did you start with perhaps a list of concepts you wanted to impart? Or was it more, um, did it start the other way? Did you start with these stories, a mummy's curse, uh, a whistleblower, uh, and then say, what, what can we find what is our teachable concept in these stories? I'm just interested there. Well, uh, thank you, Ben. I mean, that is what we're trying to do. We, and and we're, we are trying to, to ensnare people with the stories, to draw them in, get them fascinated by well, what's, what's going to happen, how is this going to work out? And then while we've got them, then we suddenly whack them over the head with some social science or something and really sort of tell people something that hopefully they didn't know or they hadn't thought of in a way that they'll remember, with the music and with the acting and so on. So to answer your question, do I start with a story or do I start with the concept? A bit of both at first. So you'd find a concept, you'd think, oh, it'd be great to find um, and a really nice example of, I don't know, plan continuation bias. A so plan continuation bias is like when you have a plan and a little something goes wrong makes it a bit more difficult but you kind of stick to it and something goes something else goes wrong and something else goes wrong and it, we've all had this where like we've got some you know we're going to meet some friends or we go to a business meeting or something and gradually more and more obstacles accumulate and the plan gets ever more complicated and difficult but because it's happening bit by bit you never take that step back and go hang on this is ridiculous it's absurd i, I need a different plan so sometimes you have the concept Sometimes you've got the story and you think, well, this is a great story, but what's the, what's the psychological concept to illustrate? And often there's more than one and then you can choose. M more recently, we've now done, oh, goodness me, probably getting on for, uh, I'm not sure, maybe 40 cautionary tales. And we're now we're releasing new cautionary tales every two weeks now. It's more story driven 
now um, because I find that that's the, that's gets you a better result. It's easier to research. Um, and once you have that library of psychological concepts, if you have a story of something going wrong, you can figure out why. You can figure out a reason why to, to discuss. But every now and then I still I, I bump into some really, really cute psychological idea and I think, wow, I, I'm going to wait until the story comes along that I can hang that idea on because it's really nice. You'd be surprised too how easy it is to just like research the idea and how many stories you will find just by like a simple Google search of some concept or some, you know, psychological, you know, construct or whatever. And then there'll be, you know, the internet is a beautiful place and things like Reddit are uh, uh, wonderful hunting grounds for these kinds of tales. It really is. And sometimes you'll find them mentioned in an academic article, for example, as, you know, an, an example, and you'll look into it. And one of two things happens. Uh, either you find that actually the story is just an urban myth. It never happened, or they've got all kinds of important details wrong. The other thing that sometimes happens, and that's when it gets really fun, is where you, you go, oh, wow, you guys totally buried the lead. There's so much to this story. It's so fascinating. I can't believe that you just kind of threw it away in two sentences because I can, I can keep people entertained for 40 minutes with this because it's just so much detail, so amazing, so many twists. Yes, and I would urge everyone to listen to, especially, I think the Cottingly Fairy story really is extremely strong, especially when it comes to applying lessons we learned within that episode to other things. I keep thinking about the snowballing lie that that's at the heart of that story and how you can apply that to something like uh, an alien abduction story that maybe was told to one person or two people for a very specific reason to, you know, get out of one situation or another, as you're saying, like this one tiny thing to escape consequences of whatever action. And then it, it you can't tell the truth because it's become too big. Um, and I just wonder if I think there I think there's so many concepts within the world of conspiracy theories in particular that we can take that and apply it to. Yeah, I mean, I I'm currently uh, very interested in in urban myths and and which of them have something really important at at the heart of them and which are in fact just completely illusory. So I don't want to do too many spoilers because I'm still researching the story, but I'm looking <laughs> into uh, the poisoned candy myth. Oh, Every yes. Halloween, parents are told, you know, some child will die tonight in America because a stranger has poisoned their candy. That will happen. And that is almost completely false. But it's not quite false. And the, the exception to that is actually one of the most horrendous things I've ever researched in my life for cautionary tales. But even then, it's not the story that people think it is. And the deeper you go, the more you look at it, the more you realize... Oh, people just, people misunderstood when, the, when this story hit about this was a child who died. When this story hit the headlines, everybody thought they knew what they were looking at. And actually, wait a week and the truth comes out. But in a week's time, no one's paying any attention. And it's, it's surprising. That's a very similar, actually, to the Dungeons & Dragons uh, cautionary tales. The story that everyone told and everyone told and everyone told, it turns out there's absolutely nothing to do with what really happened at all. But people remember the fake story and they don't sit around for the reality because the reality is never as fun. Let's pause here for a word from our sponsor and we'll return with more from Tim Harford. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. She's a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, 
A Story of California Corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Tim Harford. Let's turn the page here to uh, the idea of conspiracies, conspiracy theory, the idea of that grain of truth and that sort of uh, cumulative pearl of BS and malarkey that people that people love. We love it so much, right? It's cognitive umami. Uh, I want to spend some time exploring an article you wrote for The Atlantic in 2021, What Conspiracy Theorists Don't Believe. And I was profoundly into this and realized that we were all very much on the same page when I saw this examination, this very empathetic examination of how we can talk our loved ones back from that cognitive brink in there, Tim. You, you draw a distinction that a lot of people don't think about as often as they perhaps should, a distinction between excessive doubt and excessive belief. Could you tell us a little more about the distinction here? Also, folks, you can read the article in full right now, but listen to the rest of the episode. So this started to interest me as I was working on The Data Detective, because everybody I spoke to was was like oh you're writing a book about statistics that's great i mean it's not really a book about statistics it's a book about how to think clearly and statistics are a tool to help you but as people thought i was writing this book about statistics they were they kept saying oh that's great you're going to tell people that they shouldn't believe all these fake statistics and i was like yeah that is partly what i'm going to say but if you just sit there disbelieving everything you think it's all fake, then where do you end up? You end up in a very weird place. It feels kind of smart and kind of savvy to you know, not believe what you're told here and not believe the spin here or to say, oh, that's just the kind of the mainstream media or whatever. It feels smart, but it can take you to some strange places. And when I looked at what was happening um, with, for example, the, um, you know, the capital riots, the mainstream narrative about, about the people who invaded the capital was these are people who believe all kinds of crazy stuff that's not true. Well, you, you could characterize them in that way, but I thought it was much more, it helped me much more understand is these are people who have decided to disbelieve all kinds of things. They've disbelieved what the New York Times is telling them. They disbelieve what CNN is telling them. They disbelieve what the judiciary are telling them. They disbelieve what, at the time, mainstream Republican politicians were telling them, although many of those politicians have changed their views. This is, this is a group of people who don't trust anything. They don't believe any of these things. Now, then it then gets you to, well, and they believe some other stuff, but much more important to understand the disbelief, to understand the, the, the distrust, than to focus on what these people ended up believing. Well, and, and, and what kind of power and influence does it take to sow that level of disbelief, to say, believe me when I say to not believe this other, you know, uh, that, that I have differentiated from my word, you know, what I'm saying is the truth and what they're saying is not. And it creates this kind of us versus them mentality that if you let it go too far unchecked, it can erupt into violence in the streets. 
Um, and it does go unchecked because that's sort of what it's designed to do, isn't it? It's designed, it's like the weaponized uh, rhetorical version of, of all of those clickbait articles that are designed to make you a little upset. This is designed to make you act out, you know, this is sort of the culmination of all that other stuff, right? And it goes back a long way. So the, the use of disbelief as a weapon goes back, well, at least to the cigarette industry. So I described this in, in The Data Detective. The evidence comes out, cigarettes are very dangerous, dramatically increase your risk of lung cancer, new evidence starts coming in, and heart disease and all kinds of other stuff. That's what the science is starting to show. But it's early days because we don't have great evidence, but that's what it's looking like. What's the response of the cigarette companies? Well, they could say, don't believe this stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's untrue. Uh, trust us, we are giving you safe products, you know, have we ever let you down? And they realize that's not going to work. Instead, they just work on doubt. Well, hmm, yeah, isn't it interesting? These scientists, they haven't quite got their story all lined up, have they? They disagree about some interesting stuff. Like, these people are saying this thing, these people are saying this other thing. Shouldn't we do some more research? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we dig a bit deeper? Shouldn't we wait until the full facts are out? And of course, all those things, they sound really reasonable. And in fact, they kind of are really reasonable, except you take them to the extreme con conclusion, and the extreme conclusion is no one knows anything about anything and therefore keep smoking. And, that's, <laughs> and it's incredibly effective. And it's been so interesting to see that strategy weaponized and continued in the modern world and so many different uh, people trying to sell so many different ideas political ideologies whatever they'll focus first on doubt can you believe what you're being told can you can you believe what the mainstream media are, are telling you and it's it's effective partly because well you know sometimes you shouldn't believe what you're told sometimes you shouldn't believe the mainstream media um, but it can it, if you overdo it it gets you to a very sort of corrosive place but also, like, I mean, the nature of research is, you know, disagreement. The nature of research is this scientist says this, this scientist says this. It takes years sometimes to prove out, you know, which parts are actually the truth. And it's the same with the media. And now we're in this super cluttered space that's very confusing and, and, and difficult. It's, it's easier to just disbelieve than it is to pick out the right pieces over time yourself, I think. The motto of the Royal Society, one of the oldest scientific societies in the world, is nullius in verba. Take nobody's word for it. You, know, just, <laughs> you need to prove it to your own satisfaction. And that is, of course, how science works. Um, but you can't, you can't go through the world just basically saying, I'm not going to believe anything anybody tells me about anything at all until I personally can verify it. You, you, you can't function like that. It works for a scientist in the, the, the science that they're investigating. Um, it can't be a universal strategy for life. You have to pick your battles. What am I going to focus more curiosity on? What am I going to pay more attention to? And when am I just going to pick somebody that I will believe? And that is so beautifully put. I think this is an exploration that has to be a continuing journey for people, especially when you're not a scientist and you live in an age of endless inundation, right? Of information that grabs your attention and tells you again, to get angry or to have an emotional reaction. Um, it's quite a successful strategy, as, as you've established, uh, both in the data detective and in other work. But before we move on from, from the world of conspiracy, Tim, I have to ask you, and I know this is a little bit of a silly question, do you have 
a favorite conspiracy theory, by which I mean not one you necessarily believe, but one that one that just is fascinating to you? Well, here's one. I'm not even sure you'll have heard of this conspiracy theory, although uh, I know you guys have heard a lot. Rendlesham Forest? No. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so do you remember uh, the reported uh, sex attacks in Cologne in, I think, New Year's Eve 2015, beginning of 2016? Um, there were a lot of media reports that... Uh, men of North African heritage were roaming around the center of Cologne and just attacking women, uh, sexually assaulting women. And this got a lot of attention. People are horrified. Obviously, people are horrified. There's this wit for um, people who are kind of uh, liberal. There's this weird kind of tug of war because you want to take sexual assault on women extremely seriously, but also you're very suspicious of reports of people with brown skin doing bad things. That feels like it's not politically correct. So people didn't know what to believe. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of angst. It was a very weird story. And then it just kind of, everyone seemed to forget about it. I never really saw any follow-up reporting. So that's the, that's the story. The conspiracy theory is uh, that the, that was in some respects, uh, Russian disinformation. I have no evidence that that was Russian disinformation other than one person who has had some experience of Russian disinformation once talked to me and wondered about that because it was so strange. It came from nowhere. It was very sensitive in its timing. It was before the Brexit referendum in the UK and I believe before an important election in Germany it was, you know, caught, got, got all this attention. It just seemed odd. Like, what? Does that happen? That seems strange. And it never seems to have happened ever before. Never seems to have happened ever, ever again. So then there were the, the, so the conspiracy theory is that somehow the Kremlin paid some young men to do some stuff. I mean, I'm not saying that this didn't happen, but this was in some way organized. Now, that is a conspiracy theory that I find... Why the Kremlin and not the right wing government like of, of Britain seems more like it would be a way of pushing the England for the English kind of narrative. Like, like what's the why would the Kremlin have been involved? Like, how, well, could how does that be. Figure so, I mean, I mean, Cologne is in Germany. So the for a British faction to get involved would you would you would have thought they'd arrange for it to happen in, um, I don't know, Luton instead. Some some British city rather than German city. Um, also, I just have more belief in the Kremlin's ability to organize this kind of thing yeah. that, I, that I do in, in any British politician's <laughs> ability. I mean, things, let me, just to be serious, I don't believe this conspiracy theory. And yet it's, I'm not the kind of person who normally does believe in conspiracy theories. I tend to just go, oh, you know, that's a really kind of compelling story, but I, you know, surely not. But this is one that I can't, I can't get out of my head. But I've seen no evidence. And so you've, I, I think I have to say that the most plausible explanation probably is that the kind of horrible thing that was reported just happened and it was fairly spontaneous. And thank goodness it doesn't usually happen. Okay, let's take a quick pause and hear a word from one of our sponsors and then we'll be back with more from Tim. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, 
we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And we're back. Tim, I want to just take, again, take some of the same logic that you have going on there and apply it to something that we've all been dealing with for, gosh, it's going to be three years now. It's over three years. Um, uh, the reaction, the public reaction to uh, a mandated vaccination. You know, we get a ton of emails and voicemails and listeners calling in and giving us their opinions and how they feel and why they will or won't get vaccinated and their fears or their complete lack of fear when it comes to a pandemic. What have you seen or how have you maybe analyzed the public reaction to a mandated vaccination? Ooh, especially in your podcast, How to Vaccinate the World. How, yeah, mm-hmm, How to va- va- mm-hmm. Vaccinate the World, which I did for uh, for the BBC. And we did that weekly for several months, starting with the announcement of the first the Pfizer trial results. So when it first became clear that there, there might well be a vaccine approved and it looked, it looked pretty good, um, but it was all very early days. So how would, you know, who would take this and how would it work and how safe would it be and how would it be manufactured and how quickly could we get this into people's arms and et cetera. So all of those issues we discussed. Um, and it was such a privilege. I just met so many people who really thought so deeply about the subject. So mandated vaccination, I, I find it interesting that that's the way that you introduce the topic because uh, in the UK, the vaccine isn't mandatory. And I've crossed borders a few times recently, flown to various other European uh, countries. And mostly it's easier to cross the border if you can show proof of vaccination, but it's not mandatory. You, 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 know, you have to show negative tests and so on, which is kind of just more of a hassle. It's super easy to show you've that you've been vaccinated. You're um, absolutely so right, no, uh, Tim. I'm sorry yeah. for even uh, putting it that way. I think that's the perhaps the perception that is out there that exists and the way it's spoken about, especially in, um, you know, on places like Reddit and in places where uh, maybe fears about the vaccine are discussed. Yeah. So it's, but it it is interesting. And, you know, there is a school of thought that says, oh no, you should, you should, it's a public health issue. It's like uh, drink driving. You know, you're not allowed to wander around unvaccinated, just like you're not allowed to get in your car if you've been drinking. I mean, there's an argument, but it doesn't seem just purely, I mean, who cares what I think, but it doesn't seem necessary, right? The vaccine seems very effective at protecting you from harm. It doesn't seem as effective as we hoped at preventing transmission. And therefore, you know, there's a strong case that it's an individual decision. I mean, there's always got to be a presumption of an individual decision anyway. You would always want really good evidence before you mandated anything at all about anything. But, you know, the vaccine protects you. It probably doesn't protect other people as much as we hoped. So it's not like the smallpox vaccine. Whereas the smallpox vaccine, you're like, hey, you know, we actually could eradicate this disease forever. We just need to make sure that everybody who is anywhere close to being exposed to smallpox has, their, has the vaccine. Then you might say, well, maybe, maybe there's a reason to, to mandate. But for COVID... Um, it's stuff that it's something that people have talked about a lot. But even in China, where they have a problem because they don't have enough, op- their, their elderly population is not very well vaccinated. They, everyone who's young who is probably not at serious risk from COVID, um, unless they're very unlucky, they're all vaccinated. The elderly people are not vaccinated. You would have thought the Chinese government would get around to mandating it. But even the Chinese, unless I've missed something, have not mandated it. 
So, um, I, I, so what interests me more is this question of, well, first of all, what evidence can we gather? How safe is the vaccine? How, is effect, how effective is the vaccine? And then how do we, how do we have conversations about it? Um, and uh, talking to people who, th- who thought, think about this a lot, the first thing to recognise is people are hesitant about having the vaccine for lots and lots of different reasons. So for some people, it's a religious objection. Uh, for some people, it's ju- there's fear of needles, like they want it, but they really, they're really scared of the needle. Some people um, think that it's a pharmaceutical conspiracy, that the vaccine is not safe. Um, some people just want to wait for more data. People just have different kinds of objection. And so to lump everybody together as anti-vaxxers or vaccine hesitant or whatever, these labels never really help. And if you're, if you have a loved one, and you would like them to get vaccinated, um, then the conversation you need to have with them is has got to involve a lot of listening to what are their, what are their reasons for. I mean, this is not just true of vaccination. This is true of anybody, anybody you disagree with. If you disagree with someone, st- ask a couple of questions and then shut up, and just let them explain themselves to you. But shouldn't it be a simpler conversation, kind of like how you're describing it, very matter-of-factly, uh, and yet it's not? Um, and it, do you think that's because of how it's been used as a talking point and kind of politicized to the point of weaponization uh, to create this discord in the same ways that we've kind of been talking about throughout the episode? Yeah, that doesn't help. There's a really interesting um, essay by Dan Kahan, who's a, a psychologist and a law professor at Yale, and he studies two different vaccines. This is all pre-COVID, so it's kind of interesting. It's like a time capsule. He studied the um, uh, HBV and HPV vaccines. So HBV is hepatitis B, HPV is human papillomavirus. So this is the, uh, prevents the, the virus that um, can lead to cervical cancer. Um, and what he found was these are two vaccines that are basically, they even kind of sound the same, where HBV, you get it, if your doctor says you should have the hep B vaccine, you get the hep V vaccine. You just take your cue from your physician. Whereas the HPV vaccine, you take a cue from your congressman. That, it's a polit- completely political thing. And it's partly because it's associated with teenage sex- sexuality. It's uh, The virus is sexually transmitted. You're giving this um, vaccine to teenagers. It's kind of a sensitive topic. What does that imply about teenagers? Well, I mean, all it really implies is that one day, most teenagers will have sex one day, so you might as well vaccinate them before they start. But it's sensitive, and some you know, the companies that were making it were trying to get it made mandatory, which probably backfired, well, definitely backfired. But Dan Kahan's point is, these are two vaccines, fundamentally in terms of public health, it's basically the same choice, but one of them is politicized, and one of them is not. One of them, you just talk to your doctor, and you take professional advice. One of them, you just you get your cues from whether you're uh, whether you vote red or vote blue and this is going back to i think your your earlier three step process for statistics we can apply this to so many other things right calm context curiosity um i'm i'm repeating and matt i like that you added the fourth c is cautionary uh, tales so what one of my questions then at that point becomes a question about um about historical context uh, and the dangers of broad brushes. I greatly appreciate how you pointed out the danger of putting everyone in one demographic bucket, right? The thought terminating cliche of anti-vaxxers. It's just, 
it's quicker to say it on the evening news when you got six minutes, right? But with the idea of historical context, one of the things that we've heard often from people in the U.S. and abroad regarding their hesitancy to to engage in a vaccine program, it's often a matter of historical context. They'll say, well, look at the Tuskegee experiments, right, uh, here in the U.S. or in Pakistan, people will talk about U.S. intelligence services using a vaccination program as cover to hunt down Osama bin Laden. How, how much weight should people give those historical context arguments? And is there any sand to those arguments? Well, I mean, those are, I mean, both these, both of these things happened and you've got to recognize them. And if I was talking to somebody who, who, was using that as a concern or that seemed to be a concern, I would just be curious to ask them, um, do, do you do you think a similar thing is happening with the COVID vaccine? Or, or just tell me more, just tell me more about, about the connection between the two. Because, you know, the connection to me is not obvious, but it might be obvious to them. Same with Tuskegee. I mean, the Tuskegee um, experiments, I mean, I wouldn't even dignify them with the term experiments. I mean, it's just horrendous what happened to, to allow... Uh, African-American men to just develop syphilis just so we could see what happened. I mean, that's, it's astonishing. It's it like a war crime. I mean, it's akin to what the Nazis did. It really, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a war crime, except there was no war. I mean, right. it's, yeah, it's awful, awful, awful. Um, but I would, you know, I would be curious if someone brought that up to ask, well, tell, tell me about the connection. Tell me how you see those two things playing out. I personally don't see the connection really, but, but, People might be able to explain to me the connection, and then I'd get I'd be smarter, right? Because then they're telling me they're explaining something to me that I don't know. Or maybe this sometimes happens as people talk it through, they might go, actually, now you know, now I now you ask me to to elaborate. Maybe the connection is not so strong, um, but I wouldn't be wanting to use that as a tactic. I think it's got to be genuine. You've got to ask the question, not hoping aha, then they'll talk themselves out of it. Have you really seen people do that? I mean, you are giving people a lot of credit, I, I, I have to say. I, I find so many people dig in deeper the more they talk it through, in my experience. Yeah, of course. It, there's no magic bullet. Uh, it, it can happen. So there's, by the way, I don't know if you guys have spoken to David McCraney, the uh, host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, but he has a new book coming very soon that really explores this kind of thing and, and uh, various uh, field experiments and trials where you just get, you just have a conversation and you ask people to explain themselves because in the end nobody gets persuaded by anybody else of anything people persuade themselves and if you if you're hoping someone might change their mind you've got to give them room to think and maybe as they're thinking maybe as they're talking maybe as they're explaining it's just possible they'll change their mind but you can, you're right no you can't expect that you can't kind of like, oh, all I need to do is ask the question and boom, they will, they will have this conversion. That's, that's not how it works. That's why it's called the uh, Socratic method and not the Socratic <laughs> solution, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we, of course, we know what they did to Socrates. <laughs> you know, for this whole, for the whole vaccine thing, I really do blame British television, Tim. I want you to know that. And specifically Dennis Kelly and the show Utopia. That came out and I think it was like it was early 2000s or mid 2000s. And uh, I blame I blame you completely, Utopia, 
for making everybody go, oh, vaccines are bad. <laughs> but it, 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 is, it is amazing when you have these conversations what people will tell you. I, I, was, I was really struck by, I had a conversation with, a, with an imam but this is for part of how to vaccinate the world. And so he, he a lot of his uh, congregants, uh, uh, young Islamic men, go to his mosque. And he said some of them had this belief that the vaccine um, wasn't halal. So it was religiously forbidden because it contained animal products, which it turns out um, isn't true. But that's a conversation that they could have. And others felt that it was to take a vaccine was to break your fast. So they had the, the the festival of Ramadan. You're not allowed to eat or drink during the daylight hours. You could, for logistical reasons, you could only get vaccinated during the daylight hours, and they felt that that was breaking their fast. So he would he would talk to them, and he would explain that in his his opinion, as a religious authority, it was okay to be vaccinated. It's okay to receive medical. It's a medical treatment, and medical treatment is different from eating and drinking. But just like I never it never occurred to me that this might be a reason someone would object. And then he said something that really stuck with me. He said, I tell them that the vaccine is a gift from God. God is working through the scientists who made this vaccine, and the vaccine is a gift from God. And I'm not a religious man. It brought tears to my eyes. It was just to, to have somebody who has a totally different worldview to me thinking about what's been done and what's been achieved and expressing it in a way that would never have occurred to me. And yeah, you only learn this stuff if you, if you ask the question. But I understand that's, that's a very distinct point that's being made to a distinct group by someone with a basis in, in faith. And then it's also like even a very fascinating and moving cosign to say, this is a way of, of having people, you know, buy into this, you know, whether it's uh, complete. I mean, I know it seems genuine. It, to me, it truly seems like it's coming from a place of, of genuineness. Um, but where does the microchipping stuff come from? Where does the 5G stuff come from? Is someone just inventing this out of whole cloth in isolation and then spreading it a little at a time and it gets picked up like a meme? Like, where's that coming from? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not an expert in that, but I did ask an expert and she, as I said, well, what is, is it, do people genuinely believe this or is it, is it disinformation, um, you know, you know, Chinese dis disinformation, Russian disinformation, or is it, uh, is it people trying to sell something like they're trying to sell vitamins or whatever, some alternative cure? And she said, well, it's all three as far as she can work out. There are, different, there are different sources. There's loads and loads of different sources of disinformation. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. It's invented for different reasons. It gets spread for different reasons. And I mean, that's true of information as well. I mean, Noel, I loved the, uh, the way you put it when you said oh, it's, a very, it's a very specific point in a very specific context. But you know, that's true of almost everything everyone believes it's it's coming from a very specific context and the fact that we put each other in buckets they're like oh they're kind of they're red status they're blue status they're anti-vaxxers they're they're woke you put people in buckets you slap the label on them and that's when you stop engaging with them as human beings and you stop trying to understand the individual context and to be honest, we don't just do this to each other we do it to ourselves as well in certain contexts, we adopt these mentalities and we're like, well, I say the things I'm supposed to say and I believe the things I'm supposed to believe and I perform membership of this tribe. None of us are at our best in those circumstances. 
It reminds me of the expression, and I'm sure annoys you, the idea of don't let yourself become a statistic. You know what I mean? Like, you know, don't be someone that gets killed in a certain situation because you do something stupid, you know? Um, but that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about whittling someone down to like the most basic, easy to understand element, but that's not what statistics are at all. They're much more complex, but I don't know. It's just an interesting uh, kind of cognitively dissonant concept. The idea of becoming a statistic. Yeah. And, and it's, it's true though. And this is something I'd say in the data detective that there are just certain things that are easier to measure. And you know, the easiest thing of all to measure is just, did somebody die or not? I mean, there's still some wiggle room. <laughs> Sorry. You'd be surprised. Generally that's the thing. When you're measuring oh, mental health or you're measuring injuries, like is it a serious injury? Is it a minor injury? Is it not really an injury at all? Did it, does, it, does it get counted? Deaths get counted. And so there are certain things that they, they end up absorbing our attention, not just because death is, a, obviously we should pay attention to death, but also they absorb our attention because you can count it. And so something like, uh, say, long covid your side effects of a COVID infection or side effects of a, of a vaccination uh, is much harder to, to measure. Someone dies, you can measure that. So that's, a, that's an inbuilt bias in statistics and it's always worth, I, I would never dismiss statistics for that reason, but you need to be aware. And, you know, I would also add death is the great commonality, right? <laughs> so that's something everyone, everyone can identify with, unfortunately, at some point. Uh, this... This uh, has been such a fascinating conversation, Tim. My only regret here is that we can't make this a whole series of episodes just yet. Uh, but if you would like to learn more, just as Matt Knoll and I have, about Cautionary Tales, do check out the show available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Uh, take a page from uh, Matt's book and uh, join me being as a fan of the Data Detective, uh, along with the Undercover Economist and Messy and How to Make the World Add Up. Uh, Tim Harford, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people learn more about your work, uh, both in and outside of the, the things we've discussed? My website is timharford.com. That's not Hartford, Connecticut. There's no T in it. Timharford.com. <laughs> and there you've got my articles for the Financial Times. You've got links to the, the podcast, links to the books. Uh, that's, that's the best place, I think, to find out more. And I would just recommend everyone listen to a specific episode of Cautionary Tales that we kind of mentioned here. It's, uh, it's a beautiful story of Howard Carter, a cheeky wound, some spooky electric, and an empathetic hound. It's beautiful. It's about the mummy's curse. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us all over the internet. We are on the Facebook, the Twitter, all the thes, uh, the, the the YouTube under the handle Conspiracy Stuff on Instagram, we're Conspiracy Stuff Show. If you don't want to go into the social media, you can also give us a telephone call. We have our very own hotline with an associated uh, voicemail. Sure, call one eight three three STDWYTK. When you call in, give yourself a cool nickname, whatever you want it to be. That's great. You've got three minutes. Say whatever you'd like. Please include whether or not we can use your name and voice in the show. Thanks so much. If you don't want to call with your voice, you can instead send us a good old fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com.
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.